Welcome and thank you for joining us for the first episode of Lost in Translation or Lit with Bobby Martin and I am Sam Perkins. Uh, Bobby, thank you for for joining us today in the WCTV studios in Wilmington, Massachusetts. Thank you for having me. So Bobby uh, is uh, the brainchild behind this podcast and Bobby has lived a pretty remarkable life, enough of a life for, I don't know, four or five human beings. I met Bobby, God, it was, <laughs> let me think now, it was probably about 14 years ago at this point, back in 2008. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was somewhere right around 2008, 2009 maybe. Um, in Waltham, Massachusetts, Bobby was just wrapped up a very long career playing professional basketball and was now training professional players. And I was working on a feature on one of those players. Uh, and I met him in a gym over in Waltham and, and had no idea it would kind of lead to this. Um, but Bobby, why don't you tell me about about the, the motivation and inspiration behind kind of the podcast and, and, and the reasons for, for starting this up? Well, I believe the motivation comes from my just being um, blessed enough to actually travel the world and see different cultures and experience um, people who, you know, culturally we had nothing in common, but, you know, as far as life is concerned, um, we, uh, we were able to make it work. You know, I, I found out as I traveled Europe that the world is a lot bigger than the U.S. And, you know, in the world of basketball right now, I think, you know, the kids are so hyper, uh, what's the word, word I'm looking for, N- novelized. You know, it's just so so much novelty that um, they, they miss the bigger picture. So I just did this to, to uh, you know, maybe focus, have, help them focus a little bit more on what's out there. So uh, tell me what you're doing now these days. Where where are you living and and, and what are you what are you up to these days? And then we're gonna kind of kind of rewind back to where it all began. So I'm fortunate enough to live outside of Boston. Uh, I'm out in Waltham. I love the area. I love the town. I'm you know with my family, my wife, and two daughters. <clears throat> I have a son who just uh, went into the Navy and graduated from Rice University. I'm very proud of him. And. Um, you know, for a profession, I'm still doing the same thing I was doing when we met. You know, I get a chance to train players and and help them find their way as as they look to you know, to to just to find themselves in the world of professional basketball or you know just high school basketball. You know, I I especially love working with the high school kids. Um, I'm not going to say they're canvases that need to be painted, but um, I think I'm able to get through to them a lot more. So I love teaching. Yeah, it, it seems like when we first met, you were working basically exclusively with pros, uh, pretty high-level guys, borderline NBA guys, guys that had been to the NBA and were trying to get back, or guys that were on the cusp, but guys that were pros at different levels that were that were making money, and 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 now you're doing a lot of work with high school guys. Did you did you think when you first started working with athletes that you were going to work with high school kids, or were you kind of it was were were you basically envisioning the you know that you're going to just work with pros and that's going to be it you know what I wasn't sure at the time I knew that that moment um, allowed me to work with professionals Um, but if you're building any business you know there has to be a pipeline I wasn't quite sure how I could build a pipeline but the more I started working with kids the more I enjoyed my work 
So l- let's talk about where it all began. Tell me about, I mean, you're kind of telling the audience because I know, but let's talk about kind of, you know, where you were born and raised and what, what that was like growing up. So I was born and I like to say nurtured by my grandmother. Um, I think you raise cattle, you raise chickens. <laughs> so um, she, she nurtured me uh, with her nature. Um, honestly, she was 5'11", 6 feet. Um, I jokingly say that she was 5'11 by 5'11. <laughs> um, but if you ever saw Tyler Perry's Medea, that would be my grandmother. And it just so happens that her name was Madeline. Um, she was uh, she was stern. She was loving, and she was fierce. So you know, even though I was growing up in Atlantic City, which I believe at the time was one of the top ten most dangerous cities in America, um, it was more dangerous in my household if I was caught doing something that I wasn't supposed to be doing. Um, I loved her, but I did not like her. <laughs> she would come after me. She held me accountable. So growing up in, in Atlantic City, did you did you have a relationship with your with your parents or? So uh, my mother died just after I turned a year old, and I never knew my father. So my grandmother became two moms. Um, I remember she adopted me. I believe I was ten years old at the time. I remember going to the judge's chamber, and you know, I was just sitting down, and uh, you know, she officially became two moms. How? How hard was it to grow up, you know, with without your parents? Because I, I lost both my parents, but I I had both of them as a kid. And so I'll talk about with people, you know, that he, the the loss of being there and being conscious of, of, of losing both of them was was tremendously painful. But I was tremendously blessed to have had two great parents to to raise me. And you had a great parent and your grandmother. But as a kid, was there, did you realize an absence? And, and, and what was the impact of that on you as a kid? I didn't realize an absence because my grandmother gave me everything I needed and you know, some of what I wanted. Um, it, you know, I, I grew up an only child, so no brothers or sisters, you know, biological brothers or sisters, but I was surrounded by family and cousins. And she made sure that, um, she made sure that I was all right. So tell me about Atlantic City itself at the time. You know, when were you growing up there? And and I've heard about the crime rate. I think a lot of people there were a lot of newspaper articles on it nationwide for for a long time. And and but what was it like for you as a kid? So, I mean, as a kid, um, I, I've honestly got to say that we had fun. Um, my grandmother made sure we went to the beach. You know, so in the summers that we were, I was either on the beach or we were in. I was in New York and Queens with the rest of my family. Um, I went to Catholic school, Our Lady Star to Sea, and the nuns had a certain way of keeping us in line. So it wasn't a tough childhood because we didn't know any better. We didn't know what it was supposed to look like. We figured everything was supposed to look like that. Um, The casinos were just being built. I remember Resorts Casino being built. Uh, My grandmother had gone and gotten a job there. She spent a lot of her time working in the casinos. She spent a lot of her time working in what we call the laundry. So, you know, this is where any business would send their sheets and I'm I'm sure it was the hotels and they would send their sheets and they would clean them and press them and I used to watch her put the things into the machines and come out. So it was was a a good childhood. Uh, The mob... 
um, of course, ran Atlantic City. Um, you know, during my childhood, I was, you know, you, you see some things. I mean, I didn't know what I was looking at. Um, I didn't understand who Nicky Scarfo was, um, even though I was, you know, in school with his son. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, and you hear about John Gotti, Chicken Mantessa, you know, all these guys. And, but it was a different world. You know, I was fortunate enough in grade school that my, my pal, uh, the Police Athletic League, um, they, they, they were great. Um, grade school also introduced me to my first coach, uh, a Marine, former detective Gary Grant of the Atlantic City Police Department, who was instrumental in, in my growth. Um, he taught me to laugh at myself you know, and not take it too seriously because I was horrible at everything. <laughs> <laughs> so were you, because you, you're, you're a, a massive human being, and I don't think people it really do it justice maybe because, you know, people think of of basketball and they think of very large people and I've been around a lot of large people. And I've been around people that are taller than you. You know, we have a mutual someone you work with, one of my best friends, Big Nick, is, is seven foot one. But you are just massive. I mean I think you you always say you're six nine in today's league you could probably be listed at six eleven the way they met <laughs> go with you know, measure with your shoes on, you know, and and, and just I mean, you look like you could play defensive end, man. I mean, you're, you got to be just just a mat. It's like you know, the, the take up the whole doorway when you come in. Now, <laughs> were you always a large a large kid? No, no, no. I was when I came out of high school, soaking wet, two hundred and five pounds. <laughs> um, as a kid, I always had the shoulders. Um, no, I had a big head too, so. <laughs> You know, it was easy for my grandmother to hit me whenever she needed to. <laughs> I couldn't dodge her. You know, I wasn't quite athletic enough at that point to get out of her way. Um, but no, it was college and, and, and strength training and things like that, that that helped me find myself a little bit more. So, you know, if I mean, you're big, but you're saying that you weren't always this big. What was it? Why basketball? How did you wind up to begin with? Well, I think basketball chose me. I'm not sure at all that I chose basketball. I was a basically a nerd. I was in drama class all the time. Um, the woman that lived next door to me, who I call my aunt, um, Joanna Lassane, she was the first black woman to do a national Pepsi commercial. So what she did was she set up the Atlantic City Children's Theater. And, of course, uh, I was part of the Atlantic City Children's Theater. So drama was my thing. Uh, fortunately, the rec center um, contained her drama class and the gym was right next to it. So at the behest of the local JV coach, he says, hey, why don't you come on here and play a little bit? Now, of course, I'd done some playing you know, outside with yeah. my friends, but you know, I wasn't interested in sports. Um, not like that, not team yeah. sports. And uh, Mr. Barstell said, come on in. I went in the gym and I fell in love with the music of that basketball. Wow. How around how old were you then? What what was it high school or was it before high school? No, it was before high school. It was probably 7th grade is when I really got the bug. That's when I stopped drama class. Okay. So I stopped in 7th grade. Um I was playing on my grade school team, our Lady Star to see, but I'd gotten cut the previous year. Okay. <laughs> Sixth grade, I was cut. Seventh grade, I didn't play that much. And eighth grade, it just, uh, you know, things started clicking for me. So that's eighth grade is when you started to to, to be like, hey, um, maybe I'm, I'm pretty decent at this? No, I didn't know if I was decent. Um, I was still bad. 
Yeah, I was just better than the rest of the bums. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when did you get good, and when did you realize, hey, you know, I'm pretty good? And when did you start thinking that maybe basketball could be something that isn't just a thing to do in high school or with friends or in rec leagues? You know, I'm not sure. I'd have to really think about that because it was a gradual process. You know, this was ninth grade, um, you know, Holy Spirit High School. Um, basketball was tops on my list, but what I didn't understand is that other things came with basketball. Um, this was me giving up hanging out with my friends a lot. If I had any friends, we were going to go play basketball. Um, I ended up being ineligible my the second half of my freshman year and they were talking about bringing me up to sit varsity and and uh i go home with my report card and you know school tells me i'm ineligible my grandmother says no books no ball and that was embarrassing because i was the what they would have called the star freshman and uh it was in the papers <laughs> you know, the kids ineligible and that was embarrassing man that was embarrassing i wish i could say i learned my lesson then but i didn't you know, um, I was a kid, and uh, I thought as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Did, so, good. No, you go ahead. Uh, did, at this point, still, we talked about Atlantic City, and we talked about the mob influence, but, like, did you, and you said that you had a good childhood, you know, you felt safe at home. Did you see bad, bad shit in Atlantic City? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you see, uh, in those days, you weren't... At least I didn't see it. There was there were more fights than there were anything else. I mean, there were chains, there were knives. Um, I, I watched a guy get stabbed right in front of the Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, mercilessly. Um, I have no idea why, <laughs> but you know, I watched it. Um, it's, and there were other things that you know I'd, I'd rather not talk about. Um, but it wasn't you know it, it wasn't pretty. I mean, me me myself. Um, you know, I was. Uh, I was almost molested as a child, so you know, by a, a random guy on the street because I was too scared to fight back. Um, and uh, I think that was that was a turning point when um, you know I was ashamed to tell my grandmother, and I got away. But uh, you know, when you're in that moment of fear, man, you you, you don't know what to do, and uh, it took me a while to get over that. Yeah, I mean, these wow, that that's a story that I didn't I didn't know about. I mean, do you, those things, I mean, they really have a lasting impact on kids, you know, and I, and I worked for, for a long time in, uh, with students that had, had experienced different forms of trauma, and trauma comes in all different mm-hmm. forms. I mean, it, physical, sexual, it's things that you see, you know, that, that yeah. do you feel like um, those things had, had a lasting impact to the, the stuff that you saw and experienced outside of the safety of your your home and your your family in Atlantic City growing up do you feel like they there was a lasting impact of those absolutely um, those are things that I still I still deal with today um, you know they're triggers so you know with two young daughters or you know with my son yeah. who was growing up I was very vigilant I am very vigilant right now with my daughters and uh, you know we used to grow up watching uh, Mr. T and, you know, Mr. T had that saying, I pity the fool. Yeah. So I pity the fool. Um, I, I can't promise you what happens if, 
you know, any of my family members are ever, you know, accosted like that. It's, um, you know, if I sit and think about it, it still, wow. it still gives me yeah. chills. I worry about stuff with my kid. You know, my, my oldest is five. He's not even six. I, I'm terrified of, of the world. And, and, and I think people will have the, the misconception of, oh, the world is so bad today. I'm terrified of the world. No, the world's always been bad. It was, it was, it was worse. Uh, it just wasn't. People didn't talk about that st- about these things, mm-hmm. so I think there was this feeling that the world was was a safer place when, you know, certainly, especially for you, you're 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 uh, you're you're a black man. You know, I'm Jewish, which is not the same degree of trauma in this country, but but certainly you go back previous generations for both of us, you know, and for my kids who are biracial, and uh, it's not like the world has gotten worse. It's it's always been terrible, uh, but but I think. You see it more in the generation we live in now as far as, you know, everything is instantly uploaded and everyone's got a camera on their phones and people talk more freely about this stuff. Um, but I think the world's always been pretty terrifying. But it, it scares the hell out of me to think about, you know, that you can't be with your kids 24-7. You can't be with your loved ones 24-7. So. You know, it's tough. Uh, my grandmother used to, uh, she had a saying, and I'm sure... I'm sure she heard it from someone, but it, and I remember it to this day. She says, you can't prepare the road for the child, but you can prepare the child for the road. And that's what her message was to me most of the time. So I try not to be too overprotective of my children. Um, I let them grow because if they don't understand eventually what malevolence is, then Anyone who is malevolent will will take advantage of them, and they won't even know it. Yeah. So I have to give them, and that's the scary part as a parent. You have to give them the leeway to experience pain. You know, it's 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 disconcerting that I'm I'm looking around now, and I'm listening to you know to these shows, and I'm hearing people speak, and, and you know, conversations with friends, and I hear all these things about safe spaces. There are no safe spaces. You know, you have to learn to deal with adversity. Um, you know, you had mentioned that the, the, the uh, you can download everything; everything can be seen, and you know, you get this instant gratification, this you know, this dopamine fix. Yeah. And believe me, you know, as an athlete, we understand dopamine fixes. It's just that, you know, how do you differentiate between you know pleasure and pain? Yeah, it was dangerous. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, it was you know, it was uh, heroin was prevalent in Atlantic City. Yeah. So we watched, you know, a lot of guys just strung out on heroin. Then, you know, crack came in. But uh, you know, I think people end up kicking crack's ass. I mean, I've seen functional crack addicts. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, it, it's weird out here, man. And I know, you know, my daughters are coming to me and my son was coming to me with uh, you know, the, his his thought process on things and I'm like, what? Okay. I'm <laughs> just let him go about it and let him learn, and um, he's turned out okay for himself. Yeah, I know Junior. I mean, he's Junior. Junior's he's great, man. I've known him since he was, geez. I mean, we're going back, you know, like we said, like 14 yeah. years ago. So oh, yeah. I can't believe that he's like a grown man now. And he was, you know, I remember him when he was a kid. Um, so we talked about, you know, when you, being starting to get. You said you weren't good, but that you were. We're better than the than the the kids around you than high school. You're I think starting I said to be, bums. The bums. That's yeah. exactly what you said. <laughs> better than the bums. Uh, high school, you start to be good, but then you're you're ineligible your second half of your freshman year. 
when did things take off? Because you wind up becoming a high school All-American as a senior, which is there's not many of them. There's an awful lot of kids who play high school basketball in this country. We're talking, uh, I forget the statistic, but it's 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 millions of kids mm-hmm. play high school basketball. And and there's, you know, like a, maybe 12, 24 or 50 high school All-American. I mean, it's, it's an infinitesimally small mm-hmm. percentage, and that was as a senior. So where does it go from freshman year? ineligible second half to high school All-American as a senior being recruited by every single name program in the country? So I'd probably give um, credit to puberty. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's most of the time that's the great equalizer. <laughs> okay. um, I started growing, you know, my voice starts changing and um, I'm a little bit more aggressive. I'm tired of getting my butt kicked. Um, I remember specifically one time um, when I started getting good. You know, uh, one of the kids, one of the older kids, had elbowed me in the throat, and I go down. I mean, I am down for the count. And in the back of my mind, I hear my grandmother saying, "Get up, get up! If you don't beat them, I'm gonna beat you." So I get up and I start playing again. And I make some great plays, and I'm probably a sophomore at this time. And uh, he hits me again in the same spot. I go down in the throat. No, he hits me in the throat and I go down. And again, there's my grandmother. Get up, get up, get up. And I get up. And at that point, everything started clicking. And I wasn't going to fight him because I wasn't a fighter. And this kid was, uh, he was known as a fighter. So, you know, there was there was some trepidation. There. Yeah. It's like, nah, I'm not going to take this butt whipping. You know, I'm going to just <laughs> keep playing. And um, you know, and I was I, like I said, I was you know, I was probably 190 pounds then. Yeah. You know, and this kid was probably 220. You know, six four and yeah. 220. <laughs> um, but specifically, Mr. Barksdale, our our JV coach at the high school, um, offers to pay my way to camp, and this is John Cheney's camp, the Hall of Fame coach yep. John Cheney, Cheney that was a Temple, and. You know, he takes some kids from Atlantic City up there who you know really who are good at basketball and they want to get better. Now, remember, this is outside of Philly, and you can be the best in Atlantic City, but you're not going to be the best in you know in Atlantic City and Philly. Yeah. So, you know, I'm in camp, and uh, you know, with Coach Cheney and Sonny Hill, who is a legend in Philadelphia, and they get through to me. They start talking to me about my uh, my potential my options because you know I wasn't going to go to college. I couldn't afford college yeah. if it wasn't going to be for basketball. And they introduced us to, you know, all these players who have gone on to college, you know, from Philadelphia. I mean, it, these are, you know, I'm watching, you know, they're giving us stories about Wilt Chamberlain who was at Overbrook High School, yeah. you know, Lewis Lloyd who they call Black Magic played with the Houston Rockets. You know, Gene Banks, you know, all these guys we get to, a chance to sit and listen to these men. Speak and Coach Cheney, of course, who was a force of nature. And uh, I remember him saying distinctly, run, 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 because it's hot outside, you're on the asphalt. And, you know, guys are giving up. And I just said to myself, I'm not giving up. So I start running and running. And that just taught me to fight. You know, it taught me to fight regardless of the outcome. So I would say between Mr. Barksdale, Coach Cheney, and Sunny Hill, that's when I really started getting good. Um, that's when I cared about being uh, finding the best in myself. Now, of course, that meant you know, uh, you know, beating somebody else's butt on the court. But uh, I had no choice. 
Now, how would you describe yourself as a player when you're when you are a high school American as a senior? I mean, what was your game like? I think the game continues to evolve and change, and and uh, you know, I think evolution is is necessary, but it's not always for the best. It's you, there can be mistake, you know, some some side. You know, so there's a lot about the game. Uh, certainly, you watch <laughs> basketball from the 50s when guys aren't using their offhand. It's better now. Guys train better now, all those things. But, you know, I don't like the fact that all five guys now shoot threes because not everyone's a high percentage. A high percentage threes, if you're a good shooter, certainly shooting a higher volume of threes is better today than when the three-point line was first brought in and it mm-hmm. was kind of a specialty thing. But I don't, you know, I don't think that, the lack of post, just true post play, is for the best. I think if you took, say, Shaq in his prime and put him in the league today, yeah, he wouldn't be able, he wouldn't be out on the perimeter shooting threes, but I don't mm-hmm. think anybody could stop him in today's game. I think he'd right. average 40 points a game. That's just me personally. But how would you describe your game when you're coming out of high school? What kind of a player were you? So that is, that's interesting. It's a great question. Here, Here's the process. I had to start out being a rebounder. Yep. So I go to, uh, from Sunny Hill Giant Cheney's camp, I, I go to Five Star, all right, which was the big camp. I remember about there. Five I remember okay. five Star. Yeah, that was that was the thing back in the day. Yeah. Five. So I go to Five Star. Now I'm really playing against guys that are good, and you just don't want to be embarrassed. Um, you know, this is, you know, the Rodney, Roddy Monroe's, the Chris Corcianis, um, I mean, just so many good players out there. Uh so I wasn't getting the ball. And I had to go rebound the ball to actually score some points. So I end up getting best rebounder and MVP of five star. I go back for a second session of five star and uh, I get best rebounder again. And I say, oh, there's something to this. Because <laughs> I can get the ball this way. I can dribble it if I want to. Now, I wasn't a very good dribble, but I knew I could put it down yeah. for a couple of dribbles. And... Uh, you know, as I say, I, I thought as a child, and I would have gotten MVP twice had I gone to what they call Station 13. Station 13 was the extra work that you put in after you're done, you know, after you take care yeah. of your requirements. And I, I went to all the Station 13s my first time, and the second time I said, ah, I'm going to go take a nap. And I took a nap, and I remember uh, at the end, I'm waiting because I was killing in the camp, and everybody was there. And this is a good camp. Now. This yeah. is Lloyd Daniels, and he's all these guys. And uh, I don't get it, and I'm expecting to get MVP. And uh, Coach Patino, uh, he was working the camp at the time, Rick Patino. And, you know, you're watching all the young college coaches there, and uh, – they tell me Howard Garfinkel comes up to me and he says, uh, you know, you didn't get it because you didn't go to Station 13. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. And now from there, I go to Nike camp. You know, this is the yep. Nike ABCD camp at Princeton. Yep. And I turn around and I'm looking at Sean Kemp, Alonzo Morning, <laughs> you know, all these guys. And all you heard was boom, 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 because everybody's dunking the ball. And, uh, you know, it just turned into a fight underneath. You know, this was this was this, this was players um, developing a a a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We're, we're developing a reputation for yeah. ourselves and we didn't want to be embarrassed. Yeah. So from there, um, 
I, I made the All-American team. It, it's funny you bring up rebounding because that was – so my dad played out at UMass Amherst back in the day. He was not the same level as you, but he was, you know, super athlete at about 6'7". Um, didn't develop a game until after college when he was playing in uh, a lot of the local leagues against college kids. He had the opportunity to go play overseas and then uh, – but he said he really developed when he was in his mid-20s and 30s, you know, playing here. But he was just a super athlete, and he mm-hmm. grew up in a suburban league, so all he had to do at that size and is just get the ball in the wing, go in and dunk it on everybody. You know? But he instilled in me growing up that a passion for rebounding. It was, I think, his favorite part of the game. He was a great rebounder. Um, once again, not at the same acclaim as you, but he had like a 37-rebound game in, in high school at one point. Uh, and, and, I've never had a 37-rebound yeah. <laughs> game. <laughs> but he ta- taught me that rebounding is one, especially on the offensive glass, it's almost purely an effort statistic where you, it's one of those things that if you are going to fight more than other people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm on the offensive glass, especially because you don't have the inside positioning typically yes. when a shot goes up if you're on offense. Yes. That that's one of those things that, that effort really comes down to it. So he I I always loved rebounders growing up, whether it was um Otis Hill or Lou Rowe or, mm-hmm. or at a lower level at the University of Vermont. I was a guy Trevor Gaines was one of my favorite players because he led the nation in offensive rebounding. Even me as a little little guy, I was always one of the leading rebounders wherever I played just from just wanting it. But uh, I, I think you, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you set a couple of records over in the ACB league in Spain for rebounding? Um, I'm pretty positive, And that's for people that don't know, it's like the second best league in the world outside of the NBA. Um, but I think I read that, that you set some, some rebounding. Uh, I, I did. Um, it's extremely tough to rebound in that league. Um, I, th- I think I averaged a little over 11 rebounds yeah. a game. And uh, nobody's done that since. Yep. So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Unfortunately, the rebound that I set with my first team over there had been broken last year. And uh, those sons of bitches called me and let me know. <laughs> <laughs> they called you up. You know, you're talking two decades later, three decades later. Uh, they put the kid on the phone with me. And all I can say is congratulations <laughs> because records are made to yeah. be broken. But um, it was great that they kept in touch with me and, yeah. and remembered the effort that I gave. So, you you you're high school all American. You're and I've always read that you're a great rebounder, and that's what I was kind of getting at. Is I think it's a lost art. I think you know for a while, and another episode we'll talk more about AAU culture and all that stuff, which I think both of us have some pretty strong opinions on. But you know, the last couple of years during COVID, I did a lot of video production, helping out with colleges and AAU stuff, and you know there i have a lot of thoughts like i said that i'll i'll visit later on but one of the things i could not believe and this was going back even more when i was after my own athletic days were over i was for a while i was covering college hoops low division 1 college hoops which i love but i just nobody wants to rebound the ball in the offensive glass i mean there's one program i won't put them on blast but i remember for a couple of years it's uh they wear red and they are in New England, and they're not in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, uh, Vermont, Maine, um, and they, they're actually going to be dropping down out of Division One now. That I remember, there were a couple of years that literally their their strategy, because they didn't want to get beat back on defense, is a shot would go up and nobody would be going after it on the offensive glass. And I almost walked out on a couple of games that I was covering because I was so disgusted by this. 
But I, at these AAU tournaments that I would help uh, produce videos at or produce videos at, the lack of, of, of rebounding, especially on the offensive class, everybody wants to shoot, everybody wants to dribble. Nobody wants to go after the ball. Um, and I would always think about Charles Barkley had a famous quote, and, you know, Charles is pretty polarizing, but he was talking about people always ask me about what's my rebounding technique because he was he's, Charles is like 6'3 and a half without his shoes on. <laughs> I mean, they list him at 6'6. Six, six. But to be a top 50 all-time player, power forward, rebounder like him at that size, it's and he said he was talking about how people always ask him what's his technique, and his technique is go get the damn ball that, you know, and I, I would always think the kids that would stand out at these AAU tournaments to me are the, the few that's still actually going after it on the offensive glass. But it just drives me crazy that people don't don't rebound. Um, I don't know what your feelings are on the game today when it comes to rebounding. Um, I don't believe that the coaches place an emphasis on rebounding. Um, I think they too were caught up into the uh, the the uh, analytics of the game, you know, more three-point shots, yeah. less twos. And I'm sure, I th- I'm pretty sure I remember Coach Bill Cohen saying that the ana- the, the analytics on going after the rebound, no, <laughs> don't say much. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, at the same time, coaches want kids who do the dirty work. Yeah. And that is part of the dirty work. You know, they complain when they don't do it. But at the same time, they're telling, well, it's not that important. Yeah. You know, so. But when you're down by one and you've got the last shot and that first shot doesn't go in and there's time on the clock. Then you hear coaches the, screaming. The, the analytics are probably better if you have someone going after the ball for a second chance than it's just, oh, you missed it with five seconds left, the game's over, you know, because. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. You know, one thing the analytics can't measure is a player's heart, a player's decision making. You know, you can say, okay, well, he passed right or left, or here's the percentage. But man, how do you measure the percentage of someone's heart? Like, not not on a computer. Yeah. You can look at it. Yeah. And see, but <laughs> you know, but that's, I guess that's a totally different conversation. So you you're an all American. Everybody's coming after you. Can you talk about the recruiting process then? Because now it's. I mean, we've had the last couple of years the NIL where, where, where kids can sign deals and stuff like that, but that wasn't going on back then. And, and you hear about college, for, for, for big-time college, has always been a professional sport. We just act like it's not, you know, where people – what was it like? I mean, uh, were, were, were people third parties offering you money to go to their schools or, or whining and dining? or what, what, what was the recruiting process like? What do you remember about it? So the recruiting process hasn't changed. Um, you know, back then, you know, Sonny Vaccaro was, yep. you know, the big sneaker guy. You know, this was Nike sneakers. Um, yeah, I was offered everything under the sun. Now, there are tiers in recruitment, okay? I just so happened to be a McDonald's All-American, so um, I was treated well. Yeah. You know, I, and, you know, boosters have always been an issue. Um, it's, well, I mean, basketball is nothing compared to football. Oh, yeah. But, you know, for me, um, you know, there were sneakers sent to my house. Um, I remember my grandmother sending them right back. <laughs> um, you know, what she told me was, if you let them buy you now, you'll be bought forever. Yeah. And that stuck with me. Um, been offered cars. You know, it was, you know, Bobby, what do you need? And there were other schools that weren't going to deal with me at all just because, you know, they didn't recruit me. They didn't want me. They found someone else. Like, for instance, I got, a, I got letters from almost everyone except Georgetown. 
Mm. You know, I wasn't John Thompson's type of player. He wow. had got a, gotten a guy named Anthony Tucker. You know, and I'm pretty. I think Lonzo was the next. He was the next year yeah. coming down the pipeline. So he was, you know, looking yeah. for somebody like Lonzo. I think the Kembe was already there. Yep. So, <laughs> you know, they didn't need me, and I was an undersized, what they would call center. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so I mean, the recruiting process is, I, I would call it. Oh. What I want to say, I can't say. <laughs> um, it's you, you need help during the recruiting process. And yeah. Unfortunately, the parents don't even know what's going on. Yeah. Um, it is uh, the best analogy I could give is the Wizard of Oz when when uh, when Dorothy decided to look behind the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you see the inner workings of what really goes on. Um, you know, the coaches are under pressure. Coaches have to win. So, you know, as much as a coach will complain about, you know, a kid, you know, uh, not being the right type of kid for the program. Yeah. If that kid helps them win, they're oh, going to yeah. take that kid, you know, and they have no use for him but for them to play great basketball. So, you know, the recruiting process is tough for the kids who aren't All-Americans. You know, I mean, even now I get a chance to deal with an AAU team and I'm constantly telling the kids, you know, do you want schools to look at you? Um, unfortunately, you're fighting the portal and, and everything else. Yeah. So that's different. You know, we didn't have to deal with the portal. Yeah. They cared about having freshmen and building a program. Yeah. But, you know, now it, it's they're not, win now. They're not recruiting. For, you know, it's really hard as a freshman now. Now it's. Those kids that would be mid-major or low Division One kids, it's like, you know, no one's offering them. Go play Division Two for two years, and if you kill it there, then transfer up, you know? It's it's like that they're all looking for – there's a you know, thousand kids, you know, multiple thousands of kids in the portal, like, that are that are transferring, and the first time they don't have to sit out a year, and so it's, it's different. Now, from what I remember, you originally signed with Jim Calhoun at UConn, right? Is that – No, it was um, uh, Roly Massimino oh, okay. at Villanova. Oh, all right. I thought that something, something between you and Calhoun, because I remember you and me, we were coming back from a UConn game that we went to together, and we stopped at Rain's Deli, the Jewish deli in Vernon, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and Calhoun was in there eating, mm-hmm. and he didn't even acknowledge you, and you didn't. I thought there was something between you and Calhoun that there was history there. Uh, no, he he recruited me. Okay, um, but you know, I didn't even want to take a visit to UConn. UConn, they were nothing back then, you know. N- but they were rising. They had Cliff Robinson, yeah. Tate George, you know, so that they were moving up. But you know, they just weren't on my list. Yeah, yeah. So so you originally signed with Villanova. But you wind up at Pitt. What what happened there? So now, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm talking in hindsight yeah. right now. All right, um, Coach Mass, Roly Massimino. Um, this is a full on full full court press as far as recruiting is concerned. Yeah. You know, I was the local kid, and I had to be at Nova. Uh, they had just come off a national championship a few years earlier. And uh, I loved it. I was going to games, and we built a really good rapport. I built a really good rapport with Coach Mass and uh, John Olive, who was his his assistant at the time. And they told me, Bobby, if you come here, we're going to stop recruiting Perry Carter, who ended up going to Ohio State. Yeah. Okay. Huge guy, man. Just rebounding. My back still hurts from playing him. (laughs) Uh, And... Coach Mass, once I made my verbal commitment, Coach Mass calls me and says, hey, look, we still want to recruit Perry Carter. 
because they thought that we could play together. Now, I'm a 17-year-old kid. And I said, oh, no, you told me that this is what you were going to do. Perry and I can't play together because I played Perry before and we were playing the same position. So I didn't understand the nuances of, okay, he would play center and I would play power forward. Okay, because I was always a quote unquote center. So I decommitted and Coach Mass calls me up and just blast me. I mean, I can't say what he was you know, telling me on the phone. And, uh, you know, I thought that, man, I thought we had a good relationship. And what I thought was a good relationship was, was a business transaction. Yeah. You know, so, I, <laughs> and that's where the kids miss it. You know, this is a business transaction. So uh, he curses me out and uh, I call Coach Cal up, John Calipari, and I, my best visit was at Pitt. But I had no idea at the time that Pitt and Villanova were in a war. They had been in a war, I guess, two years earlier with Doug West, right, who was from Altoona, PA, somewhere. So he he committed to Pitt and went to Nova. I believe that's what Doug did. But uh, my visit at Pitt was great with, uh, you know, with with my friends, um, you know, Jason Matthews, um, you know, Brian Shorter, Sean Miller, Darrell Porter. Um, You know, we ended up being the number one recruiting class in the country that year. And uh, we developed a friendship that has lasted, you know, to this day. So it seems like it, it worked out in the end. It, it for for the best. What what did you play Villanova during your career at all? And and, and what was you well, know what, what was that like going against Massimino's teams after? Well, this was the Big East, so yeah, yeah. we played them. You know, twice a year. Yeah, you know, three times if you're if you get matched up in the Big East tournament. Um, it was rough for me. It was rough. Uh, you know, when you everybody thought that Pitt had bought me, you know, that it paid for me. And yep. I keep telling everybody they paid me no attention. That's about it. So, you know, we go to Villanova. They're shaking the car keys. They're throwing <laughs> money out on the floor. And, you know, this is when <laughs> fans were allowed to do those things. You know, yeah. you get the big posters. How much did they pay you? You know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it shook me. Yeah. It shook me because the gyms were smaller and yeah. a lot louder. Yeah. And, but it was so much fun. So much fun. I don't think I got over it until my junior year. <laughs> <laughs> so, so college for you. You go there as a as an all American and, and 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 as one of the best recruiting classes and and you graduate as one of the only guys in school history that has, what was it, a uh, thousand points? What was it, a thousand rebounds and two hundred blocks or something like that? I'm trying to remember the stats exactly, but it was, you know, you had a very uh, very successful career there, um, but maybe people feel like it still didn't quite live up to the billing or the hype. I don't know if that's something you struggled with or or you felt while you were there or. Or, you know, at the time, did you feel like, hey, my career went great? Or at the time, were there, were there frustrations over you, were, you weren't the guy. You were one of the guys. But there were several stars on that team. And that's part of the uh, growth process. I was one of the stars of the team. I think every recruit goes in wanting to be the star. But this is a team dynamic where you have to give your best individual effort. Uh, yes, I was disappointed with the way my career ended up, not because I didn't give it my all. Um, my senior year, I got hurt. Um, I believe in some of the preseason draft polls, um, I was, I was, uh, 
I was selected to be one of the. I was selected to be at the end of the first round. Yeah. Okay. And of course, that you know th- that gives me you know a, a little bit more energy you know going into the season. Unfortunately, I got hurt. It started off great. Um, I missed a lot of our Big East season. Came back a little bit before the tournament, but could never get back into my rhythm. Um, before Christmas, I was making all tournament teams and uh, you know playing well in ESPN. But again, this uh, I can't say that. I deserve to be drafted. I remember sitting down uh, the night of the draft you know, in, in my little room in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, my name wasn't called. Um, I believe when I heard Bobby, it wasn't Bobby Martin. It was Bobby Fields. <laughs> okay. And uh, it crushed me. It crushed me because I felt as though I let myself down, that I didn't give my best. And, um, you know, I blamed I blamed my coach because we didn't get along that much. You know, he was he was a hard ass. You know, he was the Bobby Knight of the yeah. East, right? And I was never a kid that responded to that that type of communication. So, you know, it was tough. It was tough for me. And I, I remember distinctly not watching my old team after I graduated because I was so upset at the way things had turned out. And now I'm in the CBA. Yeah. which is you know, the, the, the D-League. And I'm still upset, because I, but now I get a little bit stronger dose of reality because I'm sitting next to former first-round picks you know, who have been cut for one reason or another, and they're trying to make the team. I thought that I could go to Europe easily. Um, Europe said no. <laughs> um, and I ended up being, I believe it was a sixth-round draft pick in the CBA, yeah. So my chances of making that team weren't good, but um, work ethic and some talent uh, let me stick. What was that experience like in the CBA? Because this is back in the 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 ninety, the early nineties, right? Or the yeah, early nineties. Yeah, yeah, early nineties. So the D League doesn't exist. The CBA is the minor league at the time. There's a mm-hmm. bunch of future NBAers have come through the C, the CBA, and not just players but coaches you know mm-hmm. uh, Phil Jackson mm-hmm. coached in the CBA mm-hmm. um, George Carl coached yep. in the CBA uh, and at the time it's a minor league it is the minor league for for the NBA you know current former well there's former play, NBAers there's future NBAers and a lot of guys fighting on either side of that to get there um, what was that experience like you go from Pitt where you're you know in college, but you guys are, are one of the teams in the country that, that everybody knows, everybody follows. Charter flights everywhere, I assume taken care of pretty well on campus, kind of, you know, yes. superstars, everybody knows you. What is the CBA experience like? So I get drafted by the Quad City Thunder. All right. That and name right there screams <laughs> CBA, you know? Yes. Quad City. So I'm in Quad City, Quad City Illinois. Um, I believe it's Davenport, Moline, Bettendorf, and Rock Island. All right, those are the four yeah. cities. And look, they're basketball fans out there. They yeah. they knew of me, but my teammates didn't care. I'm playing with guys like Steve Scheffler, Randolph Keys, uh, you know, Tate George, um, other veterans who have been in the league. 
um, you know, for a while and are looking to move up. I'm playing with a coach, Dan Panaggio, who is totally new. His father's a legend, and he wants to move up in the basketball world. Now, he ended up being an NBA coach, an assistant, I believe, with the Sixers or something like that. Um, and uh, it was humbling. It was humbling because I didn't play. You know, and when you don't play in the CBA, which is a revolving door of players, you can have five new guys on the team um, the very next day. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Guys are getting cut all the time. And I was playing for, I believe it was $600 a week taxable. Wow. Two. Are you yeah. kidding me? <laughs> so um, the good thing was, is, you know, our owner was a wonderful woman and, uh, and along, and she took care of us. Now... Um, like I said, it was tough because I wasn't playing, and I, I distinctly remember feeling that I was going to get cut. So, because I was getting garbage time. Yeah. You know, and uh, I went to the coach and I said, Look, stop putting me in with the bench. Put me in with the starter so I can make some mistakes. And he looks at me. <laughs> he says, Okay, I'm going to put you in. So he puts me in, and I have my first great game in the CBA. And after that, um, you know, he brings me back the second year, and uh, I play extremely well. I make the All-Star team, and uh, Europe started to open up its doors for me a little bit. So that's the way I, I, I remember it. It was, I just, I saw the business side of it. Yeah. I just watched people get cut, you know, during, at the worst times. I watched guys medicate with drugs, you know, uh, you know, you medicate with women, you know, what yeah. your drug of choice. Yeah. Now, and uh, it was tough. It was tough, man. And I, and I remember t telling myself, I can't, I can't fall victim to this. As embarrassed as I was, as ashamed as I was of myself for not making the NBA, I thought that the CBA would uh, would help me forget, and you know what? It didn't. Yeah, <laughs> it never did. How, so you you think of the CBA? When I think of the CBA, I think of what I you know my experiences with minor league baseball. You think about busing from town to town. These mm -hmm. kind of they're they're not destination cities. They're stops along the way for mm -hmm. the average people. You know, uh, staying in 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 certainly not five star hotels. Uh, you think motels or you know. Holiday Inn, you yes. know, or whatever. But how long do those NBA dreams stick with you while you're there? Are you still thinking of? I think I, I'm still I'm still hoping that I get there. I still believe I get there. I'm still still honestly thinking about the possibility of my future being in the NBA. Was it the full two years that you're in the CBA? You know, I was in the CBA for more than two okay. years. Um, my rookie year, I basically didn't play. Yeah. Had a good playoff, but uh, I came back my second year. Um, after my second year, I um, I believe that was the first offer I got from Spain. Um, I tried to go to France. I got cut in France after my first year. That's how I went. I got yeah. cut in France, came back to the CBA, played my way through it. Now, I was actually cut during Christmas, which was horrible. <laughs> You know, and at the time, I believe it was, uh, they were offering me $90,000. And I said, wow, $90,000, that's more than most doctors. Right? This is in France? This is in France. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and, and I take my son's mom at the time. And, uh, you know, we go over there and I'm thinking, oh, I can take care of you. I can take care of you. You know, it'll be fine. She's, she quits her job. And, Oof. Oh, dude. Uh, 
as a child, I thought as a child. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I end up getting cut, and you know, we fly back to New York, and you know, we're we're spending you know Christmas with my family, who would come to New York because I had a lot of family in New York. I spent a lot of summers there, and uh, then I've got to go back to uh, Quad City, Illinois, with my head hanging yep. down. So I think you. It's not that you give up on your dream of the NBA. I think what happens is is that um, there's there's a brighter light shined on how hard it is to actually get there. Um, guys were getting sent down to the CBA, and they were clearly going to get called back up. Yeah. You know, if you look at the D League, most of the guys that get called up are guys that have already been in yeah, the NBA. Yeah, people don't realize that, that for the most part— um, they're not guys that have no experience that are that. I mean, COVID changed it a little bit because mm-hmm. there's a lot more roster turnover during mm-hmm. the, the protocols. But right. typically, the ones that are getting called up from the minor leagues are guys that have already been in the NBA. You know, yeah. outside. You know, certainly before COVID and and just this massive people having to go on quarantine for a certain amount of time. And um, so when when. When does Spain ha- Spain happen and Europe happen? Because you wind up having a very long career over there. How does that? You said you went to France, you got cut. Mm-hmm. How does how do you wind up back over in Europe? So I go to France, I get cut, I come back, and I end up making the All Star team. Yep. In the CBA, and uh, after that season, um, during that summer, I believe I'm playing summer league. I'm definitely playing summer league. You know, I, this was Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I'm out in L.A. We're yeah. all over the place because yeah. the NBA was doing multiple sites at that time, and you would just travel from one to the other, playing for different teams. Yeah. Um, so they see me there, right? Spain, um, the scouts from Spain see me there. They look at my numbers. They see that I'm consistent, which is a huge word, consistency, man, consistency. <laughs> and uh, I get my first offer from Spain, and right away I say yes. Because I needed to make some money. Yeah. Okay. Um, I go to Spain and I sign with the worst team in the league. Um, the bottom two teams drop out. Yep. Uh, the bottom two teams drop out the league, and the top two teams from the lower level move up. Yeah. They have that realignment every year, which is it's something. Yeah. It's something they should think about. If they had it here, that would be interesting, you know. <laughs> yes, uh, it would. But uh, it's very interesting over there how the how the in the, you have the tiers where you'll have the top division and then the next division and the two worst teams in the top division have to drop down. The two best teams mm-hmm. from the second division move up each year. So. Mm-hmm. So that team uh, was Murcia, M- Murcia. I would say it in Spanish, <laughs> right? <laughs> With the king, the king Spanish. Um, they were, I believe it was a 16-team league at that time, and they had finished 14th. So one game ahead of the two bottom yeah. teams that had to drop down. So they were technically, you know, yeah. going to be the worst team in the league next year because um, the two new teams would have a chance. Yeah. So I go there, and I'm fortunate enough to play with a wonderful guard that went to Drexel, um, one of the best players I've ever played with. Uh, his name is Michael Anderson. Okay, yep. And um, I have Mike as my point guard. And, you know, as a player, I'm a guy that's going to run the floor. I'm going to rebound. You can throw it up in the air. I'm going to go get it. And Mike knew that. And he's from Philly. Yep. So I'd known Mike for a little bit. You know, he was older, but I knew him. Yeah. And another guy from California named Johnny Rogers, who was one of the best shooters I've ever seen in my life. Uh, 6'10", could fill it up. He had some experience in the NBA also. 
And uh, the Spanish players were just bad. Just bad. And as an American, you're expected to go over there and do your thing and make up for the mistakes of the others while helping them learn. Yeah. And our coach was a good coach, and he said, man, just play. Play. <laughs> just play. And I'm thinking that it just has to be like I learned in college, you know, or the, C- the CBA where pass the ball, move, cut, because we ran a triangle yeah. offense in the, uh, in the CBA. Yeah. That was huge back then was the triangle yeah. offense, right? Everybody wanted to run triangle. And there was no triangle offense in Spain. Right? <laughs> As an American, they wanted you to go off. But I was lucky enough to have Mike who could give you 20 and Johnny who could give you 20. And they allowed me to get my double-doubles. Yeah. And it wasn't easy because I had to figure out the league. You know, I'm new. The refs weren't giving me any calls. Um, I rem- distinctly remember our coach saying, you know, you're a rookie. You're a rookie. And, of course, my ego was, look, man, I've been playing for two yeah. years now. What do you mean rookie? I'm no rookie. You know, I know what I'm doing. But getting accustomed to basketball in Europe, man, this was Jenga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you're dealing with – you're dealing with another culture, um, you know, another language. Um, you're dealing with people you don't know, and uh, it, it, it's a it's a huge barrier. You know, there are always pitfalls, and you have to watch out for them because if you don't get along with the natives, you're done. Yeah, there's so many Americans who have gone over there. I mean, first round picks. Randy White. I don't know if you remember Randy White. But he was a first-round pick of the Dallas Mavericks. Right? Yeah. He was over there and couldn't get along with anybody. And I'm not trying to name drop. I'm just saying that when we go yeah. over, when you go to Europe, you're expect, they need to see the young man in you or the man in you, you know, who you are as a person because you got to get along with their, their players. Yeah, it's not an easy lifestyle. And it's, it's you know, I remember it, just everything I've heard is, you know, you might have three Americans on your team, but, like, so you don't speak the language as most of your teammates, you might not get along with the two other Americans. Or it might not be that you don't get along, but you might be a kid in your early 20s who's got a – you're 24. Mm -hmm. You've got a 30-year-old who's a vet, but it's still kind of – and then you've got a 36-year-old who's at the end of his career. Yes. And you guys are just on totally different wavelengths. Yes. But I I think about, you know, it's not just – I mean, you have to have a certain level of greatness – to go and play in the ACB, which is the, the the top league in Spain, which is consistently the best domestic league in the world outside of the NBA. Right. Even though there's been turnover and leagues have come and gone and, yeah. and Europe was king and now there's – Asia talent-wise still isn't at the same level, but there's more mm-hmm. consistent money in China mm-hmm. and Japan. or mm-hmm. Not really China, but Japan, South Korea, there, right. there's great money. But it, the league isn't as good as, as the best leagues in Europe. But – but the one the, the thing that I have seen is that Spain has consistently been the, the top country outside of yes. the U.S. For, for basketball for some time now. Um, but so you need to have a certain level of greatness to get there. You know, you can't just be some anyone just because you played Division One in, in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, Most Division One players do not wind up in the ACB in Spain. But you also there's other stuff. You need to be able to have the mentality to deal with isolation, culture shock. You know, a lot of alone time, a lot of downtime, mm-hmm. staying out of trouble, staying mm-hmm. motivated. You know, I think not to try and name drop, but I remember there was a guy. You'll see these great players here that are the borderline NBA and then don't play anywhere. Like mm-hmm. uh, Steve Logan from Cincinnati, I remember, was mm-hmm. unbelievable there. You know, he just was 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 incredible as a guard uh, in the early 2000s. 
I think he was an All-American or a borderline All-American. Or, okay. Uh, and he never really played out at once. He, he didn't make the NBA, and he never – he was like a season somewhere in Europe, and that was it, done. And you see that with some of these great, great, great players that they just can't stick over there. It's, it's a tough transition. Um, they don't care. They, 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 they respect the resume but they're expecting the best out of you. And yeah. it's tough to take because you're not traveling first class. You know, you're probably on, I remember taking, you know, 12 hour bus trips. Now you're sleeping on the bus and getting there the next morning. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, you know, especially when you're playing on the lower, the lower teams yep. who are probably going to pay you a good amount of money. You know? Yeah. And, you know, what, as I started moving up in teams, you know, it was funny, the first, the first big team I played for was Tau, which is up in uh, northern Spain in the Basque region. It's on the city of Vitoria. Okay. And the coach, who's a Hall of Fame coach in Spain, Manel Comas, um, they called him the sheriff because he had a mustache, he was short, and he <laughs> looked like uh, Yosemite Sam. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, what he told me when I got there was, because, uh, you know, I mean, some really great players had played there. <sighs> I mean, yeah. great players. I was teamed up with a guy from uh, the University of Rhode Island named Kenny Green, yep. who was unbelievable as a player. Okay, so Kenny's over there; he's established himself in Spain, and uh, the list for those guys to choose from is huge because everybody wants to get to a team like Tao and make some money, all right, or Europe or Spain, yep. right? And uh, he tells me, Bobby, I signed you because you're consistent. I looked at what you did. You know, they signed you two years in a row here in Quad yeah. City. Right. You know, you stayed four years at school. I know what I'm getting. Your numbers yeah. are, you know, your numbers are good. It's a double double. And uh, I understood that it wasn't just because I was talented. Talent's not enough. It's a great beginning, but it's just yeah. not enough. So you said when you first got there that the Spanish players are terrible. And you look at the NBA now and you look at international basketball, the Olympics, even though the U.S. remains the best nation in the world for hoops mm -hmm. that gap's closing a lot you know you've got you've had the last four nba mvps have been international you had giannis for two years and you've had jokic for two years now um you know team usa actually losing a game here or there mm -hmm. in international play which mm -hmm. you know was unheard of two mm -hmm. decades ago did you was it gradual or was it all of a sudden big leaps from the domestic players over there? Because you look at Spain, we had an influx of Spanish players into the NBA from yes. the Gasols and, you know. Garbajosa, uh, Calderon, yeah, yeah, all these guys. All yeah. those guys uh, that came over. Who there, there was the guy, who was the guy, the high flyer? He didn't stick as long in the NBA as those guys, but he was he's like a wing, big-time dunker. I forget his name. Uh, uh, Rudy Fernandez? Yeah, Rudy Fernandez, yeah. 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 Um, I think he didn't. He didn't really end up having a, a consistent enough outside shot as like a right. six five guy. Right. And he could have been an NBA player for a long time, but he could go be a star in Spain or be yes. a, you know like a seventh man in the yes. NBA. But did you see during your career was it a gradual improvement where the, the 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 natives went from being terrible to being pretty solid, or was it leaps as new generations came in? Um, I am going to say it was a little bit of both. The guys we mentioned, I played with every single one of them. Wow. At one point, I had played with every single person on the national team. Wow. Right? I'm sorry, with the exception of Powell and Mark. Okay. Okay, because Powell and Mark were in Barcelona. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's uh, 
You know, my, my mentor, the, the guy who helped me find myself as a basketball player and um, and helped in my growth as a man, uh, Wayne Alpert. Yeah, I know, I know Wayne. <laughs> Wayne called it out when I got to Spain, you know, because Wayne had helped so many guys get over there. And, you know, he had been there and he's looking at the game and Wayne is saying, you know what, pretty soon these guys are going to beat us. You know, their style of basketball is where we're going to go. He could see that. He yeah. called it out. And while I was there, the game was changing. So, for, for instance, when, you know, like I said, we were running the triangle offense in Quad City. Yeah. But when I got to Europe, this was that wide open offense, mm-hmm. you know, where the bigs had to handle the ball. So now I'm being asked to dribble the ball up the floor, yeah. and, you know, and, and help break the press, right? Yeah. And while I was capable of doing it, I wasn't very good at it. So I had to get good quickly, or yeah. they would replace me with someone else. So, you know, when you got the fire to your butt, you know, you either get up or, you know, you get burned. And uh, the game evolved right in front of me in this, just um, in, in a snap of a finger, man. This is what they wanted. And they were going to have it. You know, either you were going to acquiesce or you were going to be gone. So it wasn't, you know, and don't get me wrong. When I got there, when I say terrible, I'm saying terrible on the team I was on. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, they're the guys who are, you know, yeah. retreads, you yeah. know, blah, blah, blah. And I was young, so I called yeah. them retreads, yeah. right? I'm sure they were good players. But, you know, one of my first games was against Arvita Sabonis. Right. <laughs> so We got to talk. I mean, we're going to have to have a whole other episode talking about some of these guys because Sabonis, I've seen, you know, the grainy video. I've seen the documentary on Lithuanian basketball. But just you yeah. watch people in the Americans, a lot of Americans don't even know who Sabonis is because they're young now, but they, the ones that do for the most part know Sabonis as a mid-30s rookie coming mm-hmm. over finally because the Soviet Union collapses. He's finally allowed to come over. He's 7'3", 300 and something pounds. Yes. He's been drinking far too much for his entire life. I was part of that. Yeah. I drank with him. <laughs> no, no mobility. Incredible passer, incredible shooter. Yeah. They don't realize. They have it. Like I've seen the video of when Sabonis was forced to play for the for the the, the Soviet Union in the Olympics against David Robinson, and they're the same age, and he just destroyed David. And David Robinson's a top fifty player of all time. Yes. Athletic. Seven one, yeah. chiseled, yeah. Uh, and Sabonis was just dunking on. I mean, people don't realize how athletic at that size mm-hmm. Sabonis was before. I mean, I think he had three or four uh, Achilles tears yeah. that the Soviet Union yeah. rushed him back, yeah. forced him to play through, and so they're never healing. He's re tearing it. So by the time he comes over, he's not the player that he was mm-hmm. when he was young. And his greatness as an athlete, as an explosive athlete, didn't last as long because they made him keep playing after these injuries instead of being able to actually rehab. Mm-hmm. And, but at his peak before the injury, he was incredible from Man, what I've seen. Incredible. Incredible. He, uh, I remember, I've got a couple of photos of, with, with me and he in the same picture. And I remember him grabbing a, a defensive rebound and throwing a behind-the-back outlet pass Right on point, damn near full court, bounces one time, the guy picks it up and lays it in. I said, Oh my god. <laughs> I mean I mean he he from what I've seen, people will talk about, oh, he was a seven three Larry Bird or or he was, you know, he was joking before joke. But that's selling him short because people don't really yes, he's a big big boy, like huge. 
but people don't realize how athletic he was before the injuries. I'm not going to say he was Shaq because there's been mm-hmm. two Shaqs. There was Wilt Chamberlain and Shaquille O'Neal. Mm-hmm. But he was certainly David Robinson athleticism before the injuries. And, you know, but at 7'3", you know, and, and a big yeah. dude. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was, I think, easily would have been a, a top probably 20 NBA player of all time if he'd been able to come over here in his prime have the advantages of our training over here not being forced by a by 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 dictatorship to continue to play for the national team after all right. these gruesome injuries but and not to get sidetracked but yeah I mean we just we're gonna have to talk about just some of the players you've played with um but uh so so how long does your career wind up being over in Spain and is that the the only did you play in any other countries I mean I know when you're playing in some of the Euro Cup and that sort of stuff you travel, but was your entire European career in Spain other than than France that one abridged? So the majority, uh, 90% of my career was in Spain. Um, I did get a chance to play in France. I got cut. Yeah. I got a chance to play in Italy and uh, I couldn't get my FIBA clearance. Wow. So I had to come back. Yeah. Quad City would not give me my FIBA clearance at that time. Wow. Uh, and I uh, got a chance to play in Turkey. I got hurt and got cut. Yeah. So, and I, I actually ended up getting hurt in Turkey, um, coming home to rehab for about a month, and then ended up finishing the second part of the season with Real Madrid. And they re-signed me. That's you know, not the a bad next place year. to play. Yeah, it was a nice landing spot. <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice landing spot. That's one of the top clubs in in, in the yeah, world. In the world, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It was uh, Real Madrid was really nice. You know, uh, the so- I'm just talk- talking basketball, but the soccer team. This is when they still had Ronaldo, yeah. the fat Ronaldo, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. uh, Makalele, Seerdorf, um, Roberto Carlos, Figo, Zidane. I mean, I got a chance to see and hang out with all these guys, man. It was uh, it was incredible, incredible, man. It was a wonderful country. So, how long does your career end up lasting? Do you? So, uh, I start playing in '91. Uh, yeah, so '91, I graduated from yeah. college. Um, people keep asking me that, and I, I never figure it out because it was sporadic at the end. But I think I stopped playing right around in 2000. Seven. Yep, because it was okay. right before we met right. that yours came right. to an end. Yep, so two thousand. So I'm from ninety one to two thousand seven. That's a long. That time. is a long time. Sixteen, yeah. and over there, you know, it's it's not like here. As in my understanding, especially back then, is that guaranteed contracts were not a thing for Americans. Mm-hmm. If you're in the NBA, yeah. you're in Major League Baseball. Basically, every pro league here, except for the NFL, mm-hmm. your contract is guaranteed for mm-hmm. the extent that you mm-hmm. sign it. If it's a year, two years, three years, you if you get hurt. They can't if they're going to cut you. They got to pay you, and they got to take care of your rehab and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Over there, the expectation on Americans is you got to be the man, you got to win. Yes. And, like, hey, if you get hurt and you can't play, we're replacing you it's because we, you. we we can only carry you know three Americans per exactly. per team. And that was then. My first year was three. They changed it to two. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it was only two Americans, so jobs were scarce. So it's, it's you know, 16 years, 15, 16 years overseas is, that is some wear and tear that you don't have, you know, I mean, 16 years is crazy as a professional athlete anywhere, especially at your size, bigger, 
people are that they tend to have shorter careers, uh, just the wear and tear and the joints and tendons and all that stuff. But but to have, you know, on top of it over there where things are not guaranteed, it's pretty mm-hmm. incredible. Um, how does it come to an end? How do you know when it's time to hang it up? Um, it came to an end. Um, I ended up getting an ankle injury because I wasn't watching what other guys were doing. I'm standing on the sideline and a guy just run, I'm drinking water and a guy just runs into me and uh, I twist my ankle. I mean, I come back, I play, and uh, you know I end up getting a job and you know I, you know I, I come back from all that. But when you wake up and you don't want to practice, you know it's time to give it up. I was tired. Um, my son at the time was he was here. He uh, he was going to start high school, and I needed to be home. I had a great time in Europe, and uh, it just didn't make sense for me to try to hold on for a couple more years. I mean, I was I was mature, you know. Um, the younger guys were better, you know. They they may not have been wiser, but they were better. And I had to look at myself and say, am I, am I willing to do this? And uh, uh, not to mention that I wasn't getting that many offers. Yeah. You know, not worth going. You know, not the, none that were going to make me want to return. So it's time to do something else. A lot of, a lot of athletes, a lot of guys, I mean, even me, uh, and I was not anywhere near the esteem as you, but when it comes to an end, there's a lot of – there's a lot of regret. I mean, for me, even though I knew my heart wasn't in it, you know, you still, you struggle with things. You, it can be emotional. It can be tough. You can go back and forth. You can, was it for you? Did you have regrets or second, second guesses or were you at peace with that decision once it came to an end? So keeping it real, you always have regrets. Of course I had regrets. Yeah. Oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. And I don't know. I, I really don't. I don't relate to people who say they don't have any regrets because okay? <laughs> it's hard, you know, and, and as you grow, your perspective changes. You know? So, yes, there are things I would have done differently. Um, no, but what's the saying? Youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? yep. <laughs> so um, but you, you find a way to reinvent yourself. I mean, and it's hard because your 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 life. My life was spent getting on planes, buses, traveling, not having a real care in the world other than keep this job, you know, which I'm good at. So chances are I'm going to be okay. And at the end, when life tells you otherwise, look, I know you got plans, but uh, let's, let's move this on a little bit here, okay? That's tough, man, because it tells me that I'm no longer the superhuman that I thought I was. It makes me understand I'm just as mortal as anybody else. It, yeah, it's tough. It's tough, and it took me time to, to get over it. Well, I think that uh, that's a good place for our first episode to, to come to an end. We've talked about your, where you grew up and kind of where you went with ball. Uh, I hope that our listeners will, will join us as Bobby and I kind of take this journey through podcasting together. Uh, we're going to be talking about hoops, but also a lot about life, many different things, fatherhood, uh, you know, things that are going on on and off the court. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be a really great conversation because both Bobby and I have the uh, 
the gift of gab bobby is a mensch and i'm a, a mensch in training here um and uh we just we can't thank our listeners enough for joining us and really hope that you guys will tune back in for for future episodes uh bobby thank you i appreciate you having me thanks sam